My name is Edison McDaniels, and you're listening to the Surgical Fiction Podcast. Maybe ten minutes. He'll be dead in five. Slowly, inexorably, the skull had become a part of him. Like an extra Jimmy P was bleeding out, growth, moving ever closer. The evening dead. of the second day of battle. I couldn't have seen a whore in a line of priests it was so bad outside. He was as good as they came once the blade parted. Do you have any idea what it feels like to be These are trying times, nearly unprecedented, but only nearly. In 1878, a yellow fever epidemic broke out in Memphis, Tennessee. It killed over 5,000 people. It must have seemed the end of days. Today on the Surgical Fiction Podcast, I present the first chapter of Voices of the Dead by John Babb. Voices of the Dead is the story of that yellow fever epidemic of 1878. It's told in vivid detail and stunning prose. Babb is a retired rear admiral in the U.S. Public Health Service and is that rare combination of scientist-writer who really knows words and how to tell a story. His creative nonfiction account of that surreal time reads more like a novel and is more than worthy of your eyeballs and mind as you look for something to pass the time during your own self-quarantine or social distancing. Voices of the Dead by John Babb is available in ebook today. And now, Chapter One of Voices of the Dead. Chapter One Where did you say you were from? Memphis, Tennessee. Why do some people not understand that the very act of doing nothing is sometimes every bit as important as actually taking an action? Thus, when Fanny Lester decided to ignore the two men in a rowboat on the night of August 1st, 1878, who's to say how many thousands of lives might have been saved, fortunes retained, millions of dollars in commerce not lost, and orphans not created, if only she had acted to sound the alarm. Then again, the tragedy might well have happened no matter what Fanny did. All of Memphis was on edge, what with yellow fever being reported in July, first in New Orleans, then in Vicksburg. The city had prohibited the docking of any steamboats traveling up the Mississippi River from the south, hoping and praying this could avoid the disease spreading to Memphis this year. They certainly had previous experience as the city had endured recent epidemics of Yellow Jack in 1867 and 1873. Many old-timers were talking about how the wet weather of a mild spring and the hellishly hot, humid summer they were enduring were strong predictors of yet another fever year. For the last month, the newspapers had been full of stories about the latest outbreak of the fever in the Caribbean, as well as downriver, and every Memphis citizen was fully aware that the big island immediately below their city had already been designated as a quarantine stop for steamboats traveling upstream. Other quarantine stations were established 15 miles east of the city on the Memphis and Charleston rail line at Germantown, as well as six miles to the south on the Mississippi and Tennessee Railroad at Whitehaven. Some of the more sanctimonious citizens blamed the earlier epidemic of 1873 on God's wrath, due to the shameful local celebration of Mardi Gras. But that pagan custom had been abolished in Memphis well before the summer of 1878, so those who were quick to blame idolatrous and evil living for bringing forth the bacterial and viral vengeance of the Almighty were at a loss to find someone or something to blame. 
However, on this night, Fanny was preoccupied with her own troubles. She was worried she might be pregnant, let alone suspicious that her man friend, Willis Abbott, had taken off back to Mississippi when she told him why she was upset. Apparently, his devotion was short-lived when he discovered there might be dues to be paid. Fanny had visualized Abbott as her knight in shining armor, come to rescue her from life as a chambermaid at the Peabody Hotel. He was armed with a believable story that he was in town to see a couple of cotton merchants in order to pre-sell his cotton, which he predicted to be the biggest crop in Tunica County. In Fanny's mind, he not only had money to spend, but a future to offer. When she thought about improving her poor prospects, it wasn't in terms of wearing beautiful dresses and living in a fine house. She just wanted to have enough money to stop walking everywhere she went. She coveted nothing so much as riding in a buggy wherever she needed to go. The daily trek from her rooming house on Chickasaw Street to the Peabody on Union Street, some 14 blocks distant, involved wading through muddy and manure-filled streets, which often remained that way for a good week after a significant rain. Her shoes, battered and bedraggled as they always were, had been pulled off her feet by the mud on more than one occasion. Worse, there was the aspect of dealing with all the vulgar comments and catcalls from the low-life miscreants who seemed to inhabit half the street corners along those many blocks. An attractive female who had to walk during the early evening was apparently assumed to be a woman of the town, no matter how much she tried to carry herself like a lady. When the weather was extremely bad, she had spent her hard-earned cash a few times to ride the horse trolley, but that indulgent expense consumed a fourth of her daily income. Now, with Abbott's cowardly retreat, her dream of escaping her job and her poverty, let alone all the walking, was not going to happen. So she stood at the foot of Union Street, contemplating for at least the tenth time whether or not she should commit the most grievous of sins, thus making it impossible to even be buried in the Catholic cemetery. However, depression blinded her to the future, and she continued to gaze out at the roiling current of the Mississippi considering if she should just simply wade out into the river and allow herself to be swept away. Perhaps it was understandable that she did not raise the cry for a constable when the small boat appeared out of the fog and gloom. The only light was but a glow from the sparse street lamps up on the bluff. The black man rowing the boat was wearing bib overalls without a shirt. His arms and torso were covered with a sheen of beef tallow mixed with ground-up marigold petals, presumably in an effort to repel the clouds of mosquitoes hovering in the quiet water near the shoreline. The rippling muscles in the boatman's arms and shoulders were testimony that he was well-practiced in maneuvering his small craft through the whirlpools and unexpected surges of current which were everywhere in the powerful river. But the object of suspicion for even a casual observer was the young white man slumped in the front seat, his head held tightly in both hands. When the boat ground to a halt on the rounded stones of the landing, the boatman hurried forward to assist his passengers. The man struggled to climb over the side and gain his footing. Despite the temperature being close to 90 degrees just after nine o'clock in the evening, the man gathered his jacket tightly around his hunched shoulders and slowly began to make his way up the river bank to the town. With his back turned to her, Fanny found herself staring at the black man's right shoulder blade. Although she couldn't be certain, it appeared that the raised scar on his back was actually in the form of letters. What in the world could have caused such an injury? Oblivious to her attention and assured that his two-legged cargo was headed to his destination, the man rowing the boat, John Johnson, 
quickly shoved his craft back into the river and hopped aboard. He shot Fanny something more than a curious glance, hoping she would stay silent long enough for him to disappear into the gloom of the river as he headed back downstream. The last thing he needed was for some skinny white woman to holler for a constable. He knew without a doubt he wouldn't fare well if a policeman answered her call. However, the prospect of earning three dollars simply to row a man four miles had been too tempting to worry about the law and their quarantine. Fanny watched the boat's arrival and departure, but was so caught up in the drama of her own life that she probably couldn't have given anyone an accurate description of the man, except for the hellish scar ten minutes after the rowboat had headed back to the south. Finally making her decision, she made her way across the cobblestones to the river, hitched her hem-frayed dress up to her calves, and stepped to the edge of the water. She paused briefly, considering whether or not to leave her hat on the riverbank. However, it possessed a considerable droop, having lost its shape as well as two of its three feathers, so she decided it was no particular loss for the hat to remain on her head. She couldn't help but reflect on her pap, who was rumored to have fallen in the river somewhere along the Memphis riverbank, and how his loss had been so devastating to her, as it had occurred on the same day as her mam's burial. As a result, in Fanny's case, there was no one left to mourn her passing. For the first time that evening, she became conscious of the overwhelming putrid smell of the river, as it was the depository of well over a million privies all the way from Minnesota to where she stood, some thousand miles downstream. Additionally, Memphis's own vile sewer ditch discharged into the river only 300 yards upstream of where she stood. Fanny was repulsed by the slimy foulness floating on the surface and changed her mind, suddenly and irrevocably deciding she had no desire to meet her maker at the pearly gates while covered with a sheen of all that nastiness. Perhaps it was her condition which made her squeamish, or maybe the realization of what she'd almost done, but nevertheless her stomach heaved and she lost what little supper she had eaten. Finally raising her head, she turned her back on the river and began the long walk to her rooming house in the Pinch District. For the first time that evening, she was conscious of the irritating mosquitoes which were engulfing her ankles and swished her dress at the pesky creatures as she retreated back to her life. William Warren continued his shuffling journey up the embankment, finally reaching French Street at the top of the river bluff. His headache at this point was almost unbearable, and despite the fierce August humidity, he was shaking with a chill. He had left his ship, which was tied up to the south on President's Island, just after sundown, after finally convincing the fisherman, John Johnson, to row him ashore for an exorbitant price so he might find a doctor. Warren was quickly coming to the realization that he was not able to wander around seeking medical help much longer, so he began looking for a business that might still be open. Maybe they could direct him to a physician. Besides, his dizziness was only getting worse, and he had to find a place to sit down. Thankfully, he spied a couple of gas lanterns which illuminated the ground floor of a building across the street and weakly found his way to the door. The place appeared to be empty, save the proprietor. The woman who greeted him had a big smile on her face, which almost immediately disappeared as she assessed her new customer. Kate Bianda was a full-figured Italian woman of some 35 years of age who, along with her husband, ran the fruit stand and snack house. Mr. Bianda had manned the store all day long, but once Kate was able to get her daughters in bed, he went upstairs to the living quarters and Kate took his place downstairs in case they had any more customers. They were hardworking, but business had not been good at all since the city had imposed its quarantine. 
Their specialty was fried fish, along with whatever other meats might be available. As was the case with most businesses along the waterfront, the slops and refuse from the shop were sometimes thrown out in the street, but most often down the side of the bluff, toward the river. In daytime or night, the rats and dogs usually took full advantage of the opportunity. The Beyonda's business location made it very understandable that dock workers, as well as crewmen from steamboats and flatboats, visited the eating establishment at all hours, so it wasn't surprising her customers showed up well after the supper hour. She immediately noticed the shellback turtle tattoo on his right forearm, which indicated he had sailed across the equator at some point in his nautical career. But her attention was drawn to his pasty gray skin color, his blood-filled eyes, and the lank hair which was plastered against his forehead with sweat. When's the last time you had a decent meal, mister? His response was slow and so weak she had to strain to understand him. I can't hardly keep nothing on my stomach, miss. I didn't hardly feel like eating at all the last few days. She reached over and tentatively placed the palm of her hand on his forehead. Your heart is the devil's outhouse. Have you seen a doctor? No, miss. I knew one bad. Where might I find one? Old Doc Henderson stays just a couple blocks away at the Gialso House Hotel. I'd imagine he'd see you tonight. Warren pushed himself to his feet, but the dizziness grabbed hold of him and he collapsed back into the chair. Looks like you're in no shape to go anywhere. Why don't I send my cook up the street to fetch the doctor? You just stay put. Dr. Thomas Henderson appeared in about 15 minutes. He was completely bald, bigger about the waist than he was in the shoulders, and visibly in his cups, having already consumed a bit more than one dose of whiskey that evening. After taking his patient's temperature, as well as some rudimentary poking and prodding, the doctor looked suspiciously at his new patient. Just where did you say you come from, young man? I come off the Golden Crown from Down River. The physician cut his eyes sideways. Whereabouts, Down River? New Orleans. Damn, son. The doc backed up halfway across the room. We've got to get you in the hospital. Noting the alarm in his voice, Kate grabbed the physician's arm. Just what are you talking on about, doc? He turned his back on Warren and looked her in the eye. Did you have the yellow fever back during any of the recent outbreaks? The fever? Kate looked as though she was about to run out of her own cafe. No, sir. I was sure enough lucky not to catch it. Then you best pray I'm wrong. What difference does it make if I had it or not? Most of us believe if you had the yellow jack before, you've got a resistance to catching it again. Kate pointed at Warren and said in a hushed voice, Oh, my Lord, my family's just upstairs. I suppose I've got my own self in trouble. He's been in here a good half hour, and I've been waiting on him hand and foot. But what about my family? I get him out of here and in the city hospital, probably get him started on Simmons' liver regulator, but it looks like it might be too late for him. You'll have to air your place out, then scrub everything down with some lime or carbolic acid as an antiseptic and fumigator. She began to cry. But my girl's upstairs, and my husband too. What should they do? Hard to say, but they need to stay completely away from anywhere this fella's been. Shouldn't I start taking that liver regulation myself? Wouldn't hurt. It cleanses the stomach and the bowels and gets rid of all the dangerous humors. Where can I get some? 
Now, honey, you get on up to Robinson's Drugstore on 2nd Street, and don't you be telling anyone what I think we got here. Sure you don't want to start a panic. You've been listening to Chapter 1 of Voices of the Dead by John Babb. I hope you've enjoyed today's feature on the Surgical Fiction Podcast. I'll have another one for you soon. Until then, stay sane. My name is Edison McDaniels, and you're listening to Surgical Fiction, speculative tales of inspiration, cunning, awe, and terror inspired by my life as a brain surgeon.